Hubhopper Originals. Welcome to Zero Down. Today we'll be talking about free market environmentalism and the problems of this approach in solving the environmental problems we face. So let's start by understanding what a free market is. So a free market is a system in which buyers and sellers act in their self-interest and that apparently leads to the most desirable outcomes. So people are given property rights, which means they can own property and uh, there is no government intervention. So, that, so government is basically not regulating the markets. Now let's link free markets with environment. So free market environmentalism is an approach to environmental problems. It focuses on improving environmental quality. And how is that done? Again, through property rights and markets. So parties use torts to stop environmental harm. And torts is any kind of action which can be taken against wrongdoing, which in this case is pollu pollution people who are polluting the environment. We are taking action against them. So if affected parties can compel polluters to pay or compensate them, they will reduce or eliminate the externality. So this system is trying to empower the affected parties by allowing them to obtain a compensation. The premises of free market environmentalism are wealthier is healthier, and the second premise is incentives matter. Now let's talk about what is wealthier is healthier. It simply means that if we have more wealth, we can do more about more for the environment. We basically have greater means. And why healthier? Because um, there's, there's some correlation between environment and the standard of living. For example, if a river is polluted and we get it cleaned up. So we are the ones who would be reaping the benefits, like we won't be having contaminated water. So it's making us healthy. The second premise is that incentives matter. So positive incentives can turn the environment from a liability into an asset for the resource owner. If I own the piece, a piece of land, I will have the incentive to manage it and conserve it because that's for my greater good. So now we know what free market environmentalism is and how it works. Let's talk about a few instruments which, you know, through which the free market environmentalist movement works. So um, I'm sure everyone must have heard of carbon pricing. So let's try to understand what carbon pricing is. It's basically a market-based solution which says that people will be charged for the tons of emissions of carbon dioxide from their factories or their industries or whatever form they're working in. This can be done through either through carbon taxes or through cap-and-trade programs. Carbon tax is a price set per ton of carbon or per ton of CO2 emitted, whereas cap-and-trade has two components. There is a cap, which involves setting a limit on the amount of carbon you can emit. And secondly, trade. So what that means is you can trade in carbon emissions. Wait, let me just take an example of an actual market. So there's an, a big industry called A, and there's a smaller um, firm called B. And they both are in the same market, and there's a cap on the carbon. So firm A is really big, and the, since they're producing a lot, they're unable to work within this limit and end up 
over um, going above going above the limit and they're producing way too much carbon whereas form b is able to control working on a smaller scale yeah maybe. they're working on a smaller scale so they don't meet, they don't reach the cap and are able to emit lesser than it so what happens is that because they're able to successfully do this they get a carbon they get a carbon credit now this carbon credit can be traded in the market that is the first form form a the richer the bigger one can pay form b for this credit and you know they they're essentially able to trade in carbon credits and what this ensures is that the overall amount of carbon produced in that market is limited to that cap right nobody can go over it because if you're producing over it you should be able you sh- you will have to pay for it by purchasing carbon credits from the industries that are able to work within the cap right so we're just trying to control the carbon emissions right yeah so the difference between carbon tax and ca- cap and trade is what happens is in the carbon tax the government can fix a price on how much carbon you're emitting and that's what they're able to control whereas in a cap and trade system they're able to fix a quantity and the price is variable which will be eventually set by the market uh there are more the more methods that market based solutions you know work through one is offset programs so you also get a carbon offset credit you can also get one what that means is say again i'm working in the the united states of america and i have a big um, company and it's producing a lot of carbon to produce carbon the government has said that i must purchase carbon credits uh, there's the kind of credit that, that i just explained before there's also an offset credit so what i can do is i can produce a certain amount of trees in say azerbaijan and i can be like um, the trees i planted are helping in reducing carbon emissions or regulating carbon as emissions essentially so i will be granted offset credits for planting those trees and because of that i can pollute from my industries right So I'm sure you all can see the flaw in this system as I speak about it but let's get into that right so one problem with carbon permits is their distribution right so this can either be run through auction or grandfathering auction means that these permits get bid on so when this policy is made initially as well you have to give the industry certain carbon permits or nobody would be able to produce in the beginning right the idea is that eventually they will start innovating enough to not have to produce do not have to emit so much carbon mm-hmm. so initially you do have to issue permits so you can either do them through auction or grandfathering auction means that these permits get bid on right so you go to a you auction them off essentially grandfathering means that firms get permits based on how much they're already emitting this is very unfair to new entrants into the market because there's a company which has already been producing a lot of um, you know a lot yeah. of goods and they already have a lot of emissions so grandfathering would mean that they're already going to be granted permits whereas this pol- after this policy has been implemented anywhere if i come in and join the market with my new form i won't be eligible for uh, permits through grandfathering because you know i haven't been producing at all before so i haven't been emitting any carbon europe has had a system of carbon trading since 2005 which is called the european trading scheme or the ets the first phase from 2005 to 2007 and the second 2008 to 2012 weren't very successful as the government was accused of giving out free permits and the price of carbon fell due to that so the whole point of carbon the price of carbon getting more expensive over time wasn't visible but polluters were still able to trade their permits in the third phase which was 2013 to 2020 we're still in it the price has risen and free permits have decreased with more auctioning taking place but this isn't true in every sector and more importantly the cap is what is helping here not so much the trading 
which seems to have led to a volatile price and a kind of profiteering and has not yet made coal significantly cheaper than renewable energy, which is again the idea of this policy. The idea of these market-based solutions is to eventually work towards a place where we won't be emitting so much carbon. These are short-term measures. We don't, because you can't keep saying that we'll you know, keep pricing carbon uh, and you know, the problem will be solved that way. I talked about offset credits before. The problem with the offset credits is that you know, that basically there's a firm, it takes, it undertakes some action which reduces carbon emissions and gets a credit for that. So I talked about forestry projects. The problem with forestry projects is that, again, I might have planted those trees in Azerbaijan and that's great for the local environment of Azerbaijan, but the pollution I'm doing is in the United States of America and it's hurting everybody who lives in the immediate uh, vicinity of whatever firm I'm in. And that doesn't sound fair, does it? There's also the fact that permit costs can get passed on to consumers, which is, again, unfair. I'm not the one polluting the industry is. So as a consumer, why should I have to pay for it? Also, there is only one internationally agreed mechanism to regulate carbon credits called the Kyoto Mechanism. Enforcing this, however, is a matter of national cooperation. Countries get to choose their emission goals so as to set realistic goals and lead to fair prices. So what this can mean is that countries can just set lazy targets of reducing emissions. And this, this is something that actually happened. In the 2006 and 2007, in the national allocation plans, there were a lot of countries which just set lousy targets for themselves. Because if you allow people to regulate themselves or ask them to set their own goals, what are you even expecting, mm -hmm. right? Other issues include the fact that some countries um, have been accused of giving out fake permits. This happened in Russia. And uh, there have also been claims that people are scamming the offset credit system, where they're claiming that they've, you know, um, undertaken some kind of project which makes them eligible for offset credits, but they haven't actually. This isn't just problems with cap and trade. These are just problems with the market-based approach to this entire uh, to this problem in its entirety. For instance, a lot of these prob a lot of these um, problems need to be solved at a global scale. Not, not a lot of them, this is a global problem. We need yeah. to solve it at a global scale, right? But if you're expecting undeveloped, under de sorry, underdeveloped and developing nations to work at this problem at the same level as developed nations, is that really fair? Because developed nations have, you know, used um, non-renewable energy like coal to build their industries and now they're way wealthier than developing nations, but we're gonna expect developing nations to able to be able to cut down on their uh, non-renewable energy consumption and be able to reach the heights of GDP that these countries have, like, you know, pay for the environmental problem in general. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work towards that. I'm just saying, is it really fair to expect both um, you know, both parties to be able to do it at the same level. You talked about wealthier is healthier before, which is a premise of this. The problem with that is that, um, yeah, sure, as, as countries get wealthier, their standards of living do improve. Yeah. The Human Development Index does improve. But there is a limit to that, right? After a point, this is there's actually a very famous graph for this, you can look it up. After a point, even though the GDP of countries grows, the Human Development Index does not grow at the same pace the human development index stunts because after a point, the things we consume are just consumption. They aren't necessarily improving the way we live, right? 
and that is a large problem in the environmental movement in consumerism which is a cause for it right we've in, in the environmental problem right so the environmental movement also has to tackle our habit of consuming things which are unnecessary and can be cut down upon and just saying that wealthier is healthier is not going to fix it you can't say that i'm going to get rich through a bunch of ways that pollute the environment and then use that money that i had now have to fix these problems where in the first place we could have just avoided you getting richer through those malpractices anyway right um also i think this creates like a new kind of inequality because people who because the richer nations or developed nations who have the wealth to pay for this will keep doing it and ultimately they might see uh, these as a luxury also so it's yeah. not really working the way it should be this is based on the polluter pays principle now what does the this principle say so the firms or the consumers should pay for the cost of the negative externality they create so what are we asking them for pay for whatever harm you have caused some may point out that this is a utilitarian approach which which is associated with the british philosopher jeremy bentham why utilitarian because it seeks people's greatest happiness so reducing levels of carbon in the atmosphere will presumably reduce the risk of adverse climate change yeah and that in turn in turn will mean future generations are a lot happier because they have resources at, at their disposal we are not depleting everything in short we are creating a market for carbon in order to keep people happy so we are linking happiness with future welfare jay so yeah so essentially at the heart of market based solutions is stuff like wealthier is healthier yeah. and uh, the polluter should pay and what else did you say the incentives right but human behavior isn't often that simple and even with incentives like who are we like these problems aren't easily delineated by you're the one who caused it so you should pay for it sometimes it's difficult to identify yeah. and what does paying for it even mean right like how can we really set a price on carbon we, we which is yeah we can't measure in concrete term, terms as to who created how much pollution right. so the legal responsibility can't be very evident this brings us to the political aspect of the whole situation so what we'd expected was that because the climate movement involves all of us that is everybody on earth we will there will emerge a more in, interconnected global carbon market right but we found that emissions trading has remained largely a regional policy instruments with different kinds of designs in different places the architects of these systems are aware of systems in other countries and do study them while making their own but they're not very uniform uh for in, this happens due to pretty legit reasons actually there's the fact that the local politics is different right there's a lot of diversity here no country adopts limits on emissions solely for the purpose of contributing to solving a global commons problem the mission of decarbonization is pursued along other policy goals right and in some cases in local areas in a particular region the pressures there must be other pressures which are more powerful within that jurisdiction the global goals may appear relatively weak and fleeting but as the local goals such as tackling local air pollution enhancing energy security or advancing favored industries will be way stronger like the you know the will of the people or the policy makers there to fix those problems will be way more stronger than focusing on like a large environmental problem right and we're just talking about the intentions of policy makers to actually want to solve any environmental problem in the first place learning what not to do goes a long way to explaining some patterns of design divergence we observed that policy makers often learn at least as much from the failures of others as from success stories right 
So the EU EDS was the first major carbon system and its sheer size and relevance eclipsed earlier emissions trading systems as a model for learning. But the EU EDS has not been an un undisputed success, right? If it had been, then we could might have seen everybody trying to copy that model and follow it, but it didn't really happen. The lack of relevant international standards is also a problem. For instance, widely agreed caps or allowable emission rates. Like, you know, like I said, what is the price of carbon? Can we all just sit down and pin a particular number of dollars to it? Not really. It changes depending on where you are, who you are, and where you're coming from. And that is not uniformity. The convergence around financial standards and accounting, for example, displays interplay between bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratic processes inside countries and international pressures from convergence conveyed through common agreed standards. In emissions trading, this doesn't exist. There is no single set of standards which has emerged, even though this has been going on for a while. All these proposed systems do have established procedures for monitoring, verification, and enforcement, but the integrity of credits in circulation and the rules regarding penalties and responses to non-compliance vary substantially among the systems. So different systems are punishing people differently, are charging the different rates. It's hardly uniform. Yeah, so there's significant variation among the systems with very little common ground. Okay, so... Um now let's talk about the moral standing of those who are engaged in this activity. Like what happens to the moral st stigma attached to pollution? Richer entities are doing something that might be thought to be wrong, but they can pay the price. So does this mean that they've been forgiven? To understand the psychology, let's quote an example from Freakonomics about how imposing fines daycare center in Israel on late pickups actually led to the increase in the number of defaulters. So when the fine was imposed, the parents who came late to pick their kids got free from the guilt of inconveniencing the daycare workers by paying a fine. So the introduction of imposing a fine basically backfired. Similarly, even the carbon crediting scheme has been linked to increased greenhouse gas emission. The most blatant misuse has been to support the large hydropower dam projects. Mr. Patrick McCulley, who is a US-based environmentalist, said that this entire idea is flawed and that the carbon credits are based on a foundation of lies. So what happened was that these countries had applied for credits to build the dam. Once their application got approved off, they started clearing the forests, displacing the people, and changing the natural course of rivers. So what we actually see is that the system of credits, like they took credits and eventually led to higher pollution. So we can say with certainty that we can't bank upon this polluter-pays principle to serve as a solution. Also another problem is that natural resources are too difficult to privatize. Yeah. Take for example water. If we privatize water, we are basically putting a price on it, right? And this would mean that some sections of the society are secluded, they, they can't use water. So isn't this again creating an inequality, which is a market failure? Also critics point out that free market environmentalists have no method of dealing with collective problems like environmental degradation and natural resource depletion. So what they're saying is that a group of people can almost never come together and manage resources in a balanced way. Like sooner or later they are bound to get self-motivated and the end result would be overuse. So this brings us to the concept of tragedy of commons. The term tragedy of commons was coined by the biologist Garrett Hardin. The theory rose from the classical thought that government does not regulate common goods. Okay. It talks about how environmental resources are first overused as people 
act in their self-interest for short-term gains. Eventually, these shared resources get depleted and are of new, no use. So it's a kind of a pyrrhic victory. Somebody's, win, somebody's victory is transient and it comes with a great deal of losses. The example given by Hardin was that a herdsman who wants to expand his personal herd, he, know, he knows that one extra animal would mean that there's lesser food for all the other animals and also there'd be soil depletion. But inevitably, every rational herdsman would think that the best thing to do is to add one more animal. And if everybody keeps doing that, the common grazing land will be overstocked and the land would no longer be able to support any animals at all. So basically, freedom in commons brings ruin to all. So the problem with the tragedy of commons is it starts with assuming that rational beings are people who want to, again, maximize their own self-benefit, right? So we need to look beyond systems in which in people are always fragmented into individuals who only care about themselves. We, we as communities can fix problems. That happens all the time. People come together and realize what's in their you know, all of their self-interest instead of just focusing on themselves, right? Yeah, so, and that's what the folly of uh, Hardin was. He's, yeah. He thought that the idea of self-interest implies that community management institutions can't work. So he propagated the idea of government coercion and transfer of ownership from common to private. Now, so let's call this a tragedy of economists because... Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> According to Karl Marx, Nature requires long cycles of birth, development, and regeneration, but capitalism requires short-term returns. So the broader aim of the community management is addressing the community needs and focusing on well-being, which I think capitalism, which is pretty much never going to happen in capitalism. Yeah. And also, no commons-based society has the capitalism's built-in drive to put current profits ahead of the well-being of the future generations, yeah. which is right, because a community has a stronger incentive to protect the resources and keeps aside the motive of maximum production, because these resources are essential to the community's survival for, for the centuries to come. Whereas capitalist owners have the exact opposite in incentive, because for them, profit <laughs> maximization is the sole incentive for survival. They're in business because they want to make money. Pretty much. Let's take an example of a research conducted in the 1970s to study the behavior of commons. A game was developed by Paul Stern for four people where they had to choose between carpooling and solo driving with energy crisis at hand, which was depletion of oil. So how they went about this was that each player got a salary at the beginning of every round. The cost of driving alone was maintenance of the car and the fuel cost. In case of carpooling, one member paid a higher cost. These being the cost, again, the cost of fuel, car maintenance, and also extra time needed to drop each and every member to their respective destinations. Whereas the other three people paid a lower cost because they saved fuel. Yeah. Initially, the cost of driving alone was less than the average cost of being in a carpool. So everyone opted for driving alone. Nobody wanted to give up on their time. Hmm. As the game was repeated, it led to resource depletion because the cost of fuel rose at a rate determined by the total amount of driving in every round. Now what happened was that the incentives of carpooling increased over time as the resource started getting depleted. Mm. So there were more solo drivers early in the game, but the faster the resource got depleted, the faster the cost of driving increased later on. So yeah. what we saw was that carpooling proved to be the best in the long run. 
so we're saying that while people do notice monetary benefits like they are recognizing the costs they also do care about resources it's not like yeah we just blindly trudge through life without caring about what we're using and how it's impacting us sure it takes time to understand that and monetary benefits seem to make more sense to us in the short run they're not enough to rely on fixing a problem such as the environment which again is a commons problem we all need to cooperate we all need to understand it and work towards it we exactly. can't just rely on exactly markets. that brings us to our next question how does a set of community management rules change an individual's behavior right what we're trying to say is what makes the individuals follow the rules when they can gain something by simply breaking them so most people do what is good for the group and the resource because they internalize the group's interest rather than acting out of compliance with a yeah. set of external in- incentives so let's talk about the difference between compliance and internalization compliance is a method of control associated with regulations Th- the thing is that it works only when people expect to be punished for a violation but internalization works all the time community based solutions have value beyond their effect on natural environment So people who are in communities what do they have they have abundance of social capital and also stronger communities succeed at resource management and not only that success at resource management leads to stronger communities yeah so it's a cycle yeah groups which have built up familiarity they trust each other they're in a relationship where they com- they believe in communication and they all once they are they understand each other they also find it easier to solve the environmental problems at hand So our main motive of saving the environment is being fulfilled along with some extra perks which are largely um controlling selfishness neighborhood safety because this is they all they almost work like a family yeah so basically internalization plays an important role in making community management systems a success and what we really need to understand is what we really want to say here is that pollution is a problem that's largely been caused by markets by the free markets by people or and firms trying to maximize their own profits at the cost of bigger things like the environment right yeah. so do we really expect the same system to solve the problem that it, it itself caused it's more like an oxymoron because Pretty the people much. who are causing it we are expecting them to solve, solve it, it using yeah. the same ideas that caused the problem in, in the, the first, first place, place right exactly so that's all we'd like to leave you here with today